All right. Good morning. Y'all doing all right? Welcome to Connection Church. If you're a first-time guest, just want to say a special welcome to you. My name is Blake. I get the privilege to be one of the pastors here and get to teach uh, this morning. I want to welcome uh, you if you're watching online. I know Daytona, Florida. I want to welcome y'all in. We know what time of year it is. Or our whole city's down there, and so y'all are at the beach, and uh, we're not mad at all. Here we are in the Sweet Onion City, but and thank you for uh, taking the time to tune in this morning. Real quick, just a quick announcement. Uh, we're excited about doing something called Summer Nights uh, in the month of July, and so the dates are going to be on Tuesday nights at 6.30. It's going to be the 12th, the 19th, and the 26th, and so uh, Summer Nights is a discipleship night for our Connect Groups. Instead of meeting uh, in groups in your house, you will come here on Tuesday nights at 6.30, and man, we'll be going through some discipleship topics like how do I study the Bible? How do I share my faith? How do I participate in community? And so this is something that we're really, really excited about. So anyone's invited, mark that down Tuesday nights uh, in the month of July at 6.30. Uh, child care will be provided, but we, we need to know. I need to know if you need that. And so one way to sign up for child care is go to CC Vidalia forward slash summer nights, where you can come talk to me after the service, and I can also talk to you about that as well. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. I want to go ahead and invite you to get your copy of God's Word. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. I want to pray for us, and then we'll dive in uh, this morning. Lord, we just uh, love you, and we thank you for your Word. Uh, and we thank you, God, for your spirit that's here this morning. And as we dive into your word, as always, we ask that your spirit would work in our hearts through your word and do what only you can do. Convict us, shape us, encourage us to be the people that you're calling us to be. And we love you so much. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was 18 uh, years old, I remember having a spell of headaches and I remember uh, needing to go to the hospital and they did a scan on my head and that's what scans do, is it reveals something on the inside that you cannot see on the outside. Uh, X-ray or a CAT scan or MRI uh, reveals something on the inside that you cannot see on the outside and that's what we see this morning is an MRI of the church. If we ever wanna be a people that God wants us to be, if we ever wanna be a people that, that wants to cause a little havoc for the enemy, that wants to push back darkness and be the church in the world that God's calling us to be, we need to know the type of church he wants us to be. What, what some things that uh, these churches were doing good, what some things that they're doing bad. And as we dive in Revelation chapter two, that's what we see is God's letter to the church and there's some things they're doing well and we want to do that. There's some things they're doing wrong and we don't want to do that, but it's this MRI of the church, this scan of the church that we get to look into and say, hey, I want to be that people. I want to be the people that God wants me to be. And so Revelation chapter 2, picking up in verse 12, imagine Jesus writing a letter to your church. What would he say? What would he write? What would he say to Connection Church, Vidalia? Here we go, verse 12, to the angel, the messenger of the church in Pergamum. And this is the place. And I want you to take note that this is the place, Pergamum. It's a real God who wrote a real letter to a real people in a real place. I think I might have a map that we can throw up on the screen. Uh, but this is a real place. 
And if you look, there are the seven churches. You have uh, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Tithyra, Sardis, Ephesus, Smyrna. And the top left, you'll see Pergamum. That's the compromising church. That's what we're talking about today. And it's, they're in Asia, modern-day Turkey. We just had a team that came back from this place. And so you can go there, and you can see the ruins of where this church was. And so there's seven of them right there on that screen. Just wanted to give you a visual of these churches, a real people, a real place, and a real God who wrote a real letter to this place. And Pergamum was a political city. It's a place of knowledge. It had a library, 2,000 volumes written by hand 2,152 years ago. And isn't that interesting? The invent, they invented a parchment paper, and it had a religious history. It was known as the city of many gods. If you went through Greek mythology, you've heard of Zeus. Well, this is where Zeus comes from. He comes from this city. They had many gods. It had a medical history. It was a place of healing. People would travel all over to Pergamum uh, to find healing. They had uh, the God of healing, Asclepius was what they called it. It was a, a pole and a serpent wrapped around a pole. And if you look at our medical, uh, if you look at the logo today in the medical field, it is a pole with two serpents wrapped around that. That's interesting. Blake, is that going to change my life? Probably not, but it is fascinating. It is interesting. They had a temple uh, that, that people would go into, much like a hospital, and spend the night there in this temple. And they would let, uh, let out snakes in this temple. And if, you, if a snake touched you or crawled over you, man, you would have the hope of healing. Hashtag snakes. <laughs> Hashtag crazy. Give you a heart attack. Sounds like something straight out of Reedsville. I mean, anybody ever been to Reedsville? I'm just kidding. I love Reedsville. Love, love Reedsville. I'm just playing. There's some cats in there, though. There's some cats out there in Reedsville. But, man, just an interesting place. And uh, continuing in verse 12, these are the, are the words of him, of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Notice the person, Jesus. And the truest thing about Jesus is what he says about himself. And what he says is, I have the sharp, double-edged sword. This isn't baby Jesus. This is King Jesus. In Ephesus, he told them, I hold the seven stars in my hand and I'll walk among the lampstands. That Jesus. Smyrna, he told them, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died and came back to life again that Jesus. And here in Pergamum, he says, I had the sharp, double-edged sword, that Jesus. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Acts 2.37, uh, Peter stands up and preaches, 3,000 people get saved, and it says that they were cut to the heart. Ephesians 6 says, stand firm against the enemy with the sword, the word of God. It judges sin within us. It judges, judges Satan without us. These are the words of Jesus through the pen of John from the island of Patmos to the church in Pergamum. And judgment starts at the house of God. 
And God starts with the church because if the church can't get it right, the world will never get it right. And he starts with his own church. They're words of red. If you open your Bible, they are red words from the lips of Jesus to the church because there's one church and there's one God and there's one spirit and there's one word and we ought to lean in and let that word bear its weight on us this morning as we read it. Verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you live and he does know where we live. And in one sense, he knows experientially because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he knows where we live. And then in another sense, he knows sovereignly because there's nothing that he does not know. God doesn't learn anything. He knows everything. What you did last night, he knows. What we did this morning, he knows. What we do this week, there is nothing that he does not know. And that can be encouraging and, and challenging, he says, I know where you live, verse 13, where Satan has his throne. And every city has a nickname. New York City is the city that never sleeps. Atlanta is the ATL. Las Vegas is sin city. What happens in Vegas stays in. And Vidalia is the sweet onion city. And Pergamum is the city where Satan has his throne. The prince of the power of the air. He is here in Pergamum. Verse 13, he continues, yet you remain true to my name. And that's a good name to remain true to. You know, don't stand on a pastor's name because he'll let you down. Don't stand on just a, a Christian's name, but stand on Jesus. The word of God, stand on that name. And he says, you remain true to my name where Satan dwells. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan dwells, where he lives. Notice the praise in the text. And Jesus gives them praise. He said, you remain true to my name where Satan dwells. They, they're not denying Jesus with their lips. Peter denied Jesus three times. They're not denying Jesus with their lips. They're even dying for Jesus like Antipas. He was probably their pastor who died for his faith. By the way, on average, 16 people a day remain true to his name who die for the name of Jesus. This year alone, 2,944 people remain true to his name. And he says, where Satan lives. Jesus says, I know where you live. I know where you live. You live where Satan lives. And Satan doesn't live in hell. He will, but he doesn't right now. He roams to and fro like a lion on the earth. He, he is on the earth. And he is not omnipresent like God. He can't, you say, you say, Blake, man, devil's, the devil's been after me all morning. Nah. Pro probably not, because he can't be here and here and here and here. He's not all powerful like God, but he is in one place all the time. And from this text, we see he was living in Pergamum. He may have visited Ephesus. 
He may have persecuted Smyrna, but he lived in Pergamum. And I don't know if it was a 180-foot throne of Zeus that they had there. I don't know if it was because of the emperor worship that they had there. I don't know if it was because the God of healing. I don't know if it was because it was a sexualized culture. All I know is this is where Satan dwelled. This is the place where spiritual warfare constantly came against the church. And I want you to notice this. This is the space that God planted his church. It's in this space that he wanted his church to be light of the world, be saw of the earth, and push back darkness. He didn't want the, his church to run and hide in holy huddles. You know, it's easy to be faithful when your team's winning. You know what I mean? It's another thing to be faithful when you feel like you're losing. Any Braves fans in the house? All right. If y'all ain't a Braves fan now, you need to repent now. Tell you right now. But got, got Easton, he, he's on board. And then we've been, that's something we've been enjoying together, man, just watching the games together and been enjoying that. We was playing those Dodgers here uh, just the other week, and man, lost it in the 11th inning. I thought he was going to take his hat off. I thought he was going to take his jersey off. Couldn't believe they lost. I was like, buddy, you don't know what losing is. All right, we won the World Series last year, but hottest team in baseball this year. And you're ready to take your jersey off over a game. I remember when Derek Lowe was the best pitcher we had. Some of you might not know him, but now I just remember some of the rough times. But it's easy, man, to remain faithful when you're winning. It's another thing when you're losing. You ever look around the world as a Christian, you just feel like you're losing? Man, sin's just rampant. Man, I mean, just, just feels like we're losing. This was a city that probably felt like they were losing, but they remained faithful where Satan dwells. And this church teaches us, one, to be aware of spiritual warfare. That, man, there's something else behind the curtain in your life. People's not your biggest problem. There's something else behind the curtain. And they teach us to not allow circumstances to govern your devotion to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Don't throw in the towel just because things get tough. When things go up in flames, you see how real your faith is. And a faith that can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted. And he says, they show us to be faithful where we live, in our city. We want to be faithful in our city where cultural Christianity dwells. The only place on earth where you can say you're a Christian but not be one. Man, I mean, we should be faithful. Our city needs a people to look at, a people to look at, some faithful people. And at first glance, you say, man, I want to join the First Baptist Church of Pergamum. They're killing it. But then he says these words, verse 14, nevertheless, God, got them right here, dang. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And I want you to notice the problem in the text. He says, there are some among you. There's some people in your church who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. They ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. This is the illustration. Jesus, the great teacher he is, uses biblical examples. He says, this is the illustration. Some of you are acting like Balaam. Well, who's... Who's Balaam? Let me tell you about my boy Balaam. Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament. 
He was a true, he wasn't a false prophet, he's a true prophet, but he was a wicked prophet. Much like witchcraft, he, people say he could change the future. And the Israelites were coming out of Egypt into the wilderness. And then they had a lot of enemies, but one was the Moabite, Moabites. And Israel was, man, tons of people, just tons and tons of people. And the king of the Moabites saw the Israelites coming. The king's name's Balak, and the king said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't like this. Something might get out of hand. They might take us over. We got to do something. And so Balak talked to Balaam and said, Balaam, I want you to curse the Israelites. Go curse them. And he tried to a couple times, but every time Balaam tried to curse the Israelites, instead of cursing them, God blessed them. And then Balaam came to Balak and he said, listen, bro, it ain't working. But I'll tell you something that will work. You can't, you can't curse them from the outside, but you can corrupt them from the inside. I'll teach you what to do. You just got to get them to fall into sin. And if you get them to fall into sin by enticing them, God will have to judge his people because he ain't okay with sin. And so what did they do? Man, they sent the Moabite women down there. It had to be women. And, 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 and man, enticed the men to fall in to sin. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, man, he couldn't curse them from the outside, so he corrupted them on the inside. And when persecution won't work, perversion will. In other words, if the devil can't kill a church, he'll join it. If he can't devour it like a roaring lion from the outside, he will slither like a crafty serpent on the inside. And he wants to keep the church from being a light in the world, so he tries to keep the church living like the world. He's slick, crafty, enticing. It's a trap. I remember when me and Brandy stayed in Johnson Corner, Johnson's Corner, there was a field beside our house, and every winter they'd cut that field. And we would get some unwanted guests. And I don't know if it's the onion fields out there or all the drugs that's been in that place. But these weren't your normal house mice. And uh, there was nothing more joyful than, than hearing the trap go off in the middle of the night. And I used cheese and peanut butter. I think I used sandwich meat to get one of them. I, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, enticing, enticing, it's a trap. That's the language here, anything to entice you, to pull you away from the truth. And they started drifting back into things that God pulled them out of. The trap of compromise. You lean to your own understanding. Instead of living off the word of God, you will start living on the word of the world. Verse 15, he says, just like that, just like that, Balaam in the Old Testament you have those who are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans in the New Testament. Jesus says, there are people in my church compromising the truth for a lie. They're using grace to justify sin. They're praising, they're proclaiming Jesus with their lips, but they are living for the world with their life. They're drifting back into the things that God saved them out of, and they're justifying things that Jesus died for. And Jesus says, be in the world, but not of the world. And he says this, I know where you live. 
You live where Satan dwells. But watch this. Don't let bad circumstances, don't use bad circumstances to justify sinful actions. Jesus says those who make themselves friends of the world make themselves enemies of God, and they were becoming a worldly church. Instead of the church being the light of the world, the world was creeping into the church, and this has always been the problem. Instead of the church shaping the culture, the culture starts to shape the church. It's always been a problem, and does God care about that? Well, verse 16, repent. Therefore, otherwise I will come, soon come to you, and will fight against them with the word of my mouth. What? Wait a minute, what? Did Jesus just tell them, repent, or you're going to catch these hands? Is that what, did I read that wrong? Is that what he said? I'm coming to fight you. You all didn't know God was a fighter, did you? Man, when, when I, uh, I remember back in high school when we used to play this game, instead of Duck Duck Goose, we played Duck Duck Box. And this is the type of stuff we did before Jesus saved me. Amen. And, but we would get in a circle, and somebody would get a pair of boxing gloves. And then they'd have an extra pair. And they'd throw that extra pair to the people in the, you know, in the circle and challenge you to step on in the ring. And uh, I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, there's this one cat, there's one cat, and he, back then, he was, wasn't even no bigger than I am, but my boy could get down, all right? And I remember, I just remember being out there, and he'd throw them boxing gloves at somebody, they'd catch it, they'd throw it at somebody else, but they, they did not want to, and I knew where to draw the line, too, I wasn't jumping in there either, all right? But, but that's what I think about, you don't want this, you don't want this. And Jesus says, repent, this invitation, come on, get in here. Come on, come this way, come this way. But if not, you don't want this. I'll fight you with the word of my mouth. The word of God is going to judge all of us. And this invitation, I want you to notice the invitation in the text. Turn around, come to me. You turn. Man, turn around and do a U-turn. You ever, you ever been passing, you ever been driving and you pass by the cops? And you didn't know you were feeding until you saw him. And then you're like, dang, I'm going 75 and 55. And then you're like, man, please, the, hope the lights don't come on. And then, got gotcha, you. They, they come on. And then you're still trying to think, well, maybe it's somebody else. No, it's you. It's you. It's you. And then you, you look up in the rear view, and they hit that U-turn. That's the fastest U-turn I've ever seen in my life. That U-turn. That's, that's how fast you need to turn away from your sins. That fast. And God says, get in here. This is the invitation, man. Come on in here. And it's, it's confronting but welcoming. That he would welcome us back into the light. Because he doesn't owe anybody anything. But that he would say, hey, here's the invitation of grace. Not once, but over and over again. In verse 17, whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's God's call to every church, to hear the Word, to hear the Spirit. And hearing doesn't just mean hearing, it means doing, because to hear the Word is to heed His command. And parents know this well. 
That's why when you tell your kids to do something and they don't do it, you go, here's what you say. You say, did you hear me? Because based off how you're acting right now, I don't think you heard me. And that's the language here. Man, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to the one who's victorious. I'll give some hidden manna. I'll give that person a white stone. I'm going to give that person a new name. The promise of Jesus. Hidden manna, white stone, and a new name. Hidden manna, white stone, and a new name. Provision, righteousness, and new identity and friendship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What do we learn from the church of Pergamum? There's just a few things I want you to write down. I'm gonna go through it quickly, but a few things we learn from Jesus and his letter to the church in Pergamum. One is this, we need to be aware of the enemy. If we're ever gonna be a church God wants us to be, if we're ever gonna be a church that makes a little havoc for the, for the kingdom, pushes back darkness in the world that we live, we got to know of the enemy. We gotta be aware of what's up against us. C.S. Lewis says, there's two equal and opposite errors into which human race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. But to disbelieve in their existence, 13, verse 13 says, I know where you live. You live where Satan has his throne. And then at the bottom he says, who was put to death in the city where Satan lives. Behind the curtain in your everyday life, there's something else going on. And one is there is sin on the inside, and two is there's an enemy on the outside. And that's what's going on in your life. That's why in verse 14, he says, the teaching of Balaam who enticed the Israelites to fall into sin. Sin is enticing. James 4.1, what causes fights among you? Is it not the desires that battle within you? Uh, Genesis 4.7, sin is crouching at your door and desires to have you. James 1, 14 and 15 says, when you're tempted, they're dragged away by their own evil desire and they're enticed. And there's a war that wages in the human heart. It's a war of worship. You don't get to decide if you worship, you get to decide what you worship. Everybody worships something every day, all the time. You are a worshiper. And there's a war going on in your heart that you want to be worshipped or worship other things besides God. In Isaiah, God says, men plant an oak tree to watch it grow up. And they cut it down and use the wood to build a fire and bake their bread. But they'll take that same wood and they'll create and craft an idol to worship. And God looks at them and says, you fool. That on one hand, you would enjoy God's creation. On one hand, you enjoy God's provision. You would take what he's blessed you with, and man, you would enjoy that. But on the other hand, you start worshiping what he gave you instead of worshiping him. And there's a battle going on in your heart. Every human heart is a battle to, uh, enticing you to fall into sin. And Satan is deceiving the word enticing is 
an appeal to drag you out from under the truth, uh, to drag you out from what's true. That that's what he wants to do. In Genesis 3, he did it with Eve. In Genesis 4, we see it with Cain. In Judges 16, we see it with Samson. In 2 Samuel 11, we see it with David. In Matthew 1, he tried it on Jesus. Numbers 22, he did it with Balaam. Revelation 2, he's doing it with the church of Pergamum. And in Luke, he asked Jesus if he could sift the disciples like wheat in his hand. He wants to drag you out from under the truth. He roars like a lion, but he slithers like a serpent. And for some, it's persecution, but for others, it's perversion. He wants to play in on your desires and drag you out from under the truth of God's umbrella, and he wants to destroy your life. And that's what he wants to do. If you were Satan, how would you tempt yourself? How would you entice yourself, learn to think like that? Instead of sin dragging you into the dark, you got to learn to drag your sin into the light. And be on guard. Set yourself up for the wind by being on guard. If I was the enemy, I would try to keep you off guard. Try to keep you away from the church house, get you out your Bibles, keep you out of community, anything to keep you off guard. He says, be on guard. And you need to commune with Christ because you fight sin by focusing on Jesus. That's how you fight sin. And man, if I was the enemy, I'd try to keep you fighting sin in your own strength. I try to keep you full on the world that you don't have no hunger for God. And then, man, you need to walk in community because iron sharpens iron. And true confession isn't making God aware of something he already knows. True confession is living a transparent life among other people. And I would tell you, man, stay on mission because the key to a strong defense is a strong offense. And I would tell you, if I was Satan, I would try to keep you off the battlefield. Ask David. And two, we learn this. We need to maintain a distinct identity. Keyword, distinct identity. Verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. As some of you are hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught... Balak to entice the Israelites, they are to sin, they are a food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual adultery. And Jesus says, my church is supposed to be different from the world. I called to pull you out of that. And I think about the work of Christ on the cross. At the cross, he died for sin. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, you were dead in sin, but God made you alive in Christ by taking away your sin, nailing it to the cross. When he went to the cross, he died on purpose for you and for your sin. First John 2, 2, he was the atoning sacrifice for sin. Romans 6, 1 through 2, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means, no. I think about the work of Christ on the cross. I think about at the cross, he made us family. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father lavished on us that we should be called children of God because that's what you are. And he died for that at the cross to give you a new identity. And I think about his work of Christ on the cross. But I think about the heart of God for the church. 
And I don't mean to plagiarize other people's sermons, but Jesus had a good one. And uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this concerning the church, you are salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything. And then he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. There's a few things you need to know about salt. One thing is salt stops the spread of bad things. I remember when I worked for Orkin, if we had a chemical spill, we were taught to put salt on it. I remember I was frying some okra, okra one night at the house and I turned on the grease to get hot and then I forgot it was on. And then I heard Brandy holler. And I look up and she's walking across the living room with a flame. I thought, oh my God. And we put some salt on it to stop the spread of bad things. But it gives flavor to the good things. It brings out the best in what's the flavor in a steak. I remember I cooked steaks for the first night, uh, the other night, the first time ever, I know, 32. Y'all hush, first time ever. How your boy's a chef, boy's a chef. And it was good, medium rare. And uh, I, I put a little salt on it. And the salt brings out the best flavor in the steak, but in order for salt to bring out the best flavor in something else, it has to remain salt. If salt becomes conformed to the steak, it's no longer any good. And that's what Jesus says is you need to be salty, not mad, salty, but salty. Be light, be salt to bring out the best in the world. And there's a few things you need to know about light. It penetrates and attracts and guides and warns. It penetrates like a candle when the lights go out, when the power goes out. The dark can't penetrate the light, but the light penetrates the dark. And it attracts like Christmas lights. You take the lights off a tree, you ain't got nothing. You ain't got nothing. It attracts. Uh, when you set a fire and you drive by a fire, you want to just pull up in there and see what's going on. There's something attracting about light, and it guides like a lamp, and it warns like a lighthouse, and we're to be a light to the world, a floodlight for Jesus, a lamp in the dark, a lighthouse to the world, and you can't be none of these things if you're in the world and of the world and not just in the world. John MacArthur says, when the church becomes like the world, it has nothing left to offer it. And so I tell you, stand guard on spiritual compromise. The culture shouldn't shape the church. The church needs to shape the culture. Watch this. That can be risky. That can be risky. Standing firm on truth can be risky because other people aren't standing on truth, and that may go against the grain. That can be risky. But where are you willing to compromise in your life? For them, it was sex. For them, it was food sacrificed to idols. Sex and food, got them. What is it in your life? Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit's saying to the churches. What is the Spirit saying to you this morning? 
And you got to speak the truth in love, and that can be risky. Because you can't separate love from the truth and grace from the truth. Ephesus had truth, but no love. Pergamum had love, but no truth. Ephesus was so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good, but Pergamum is so earthly minded, they're no heavenly good. And Jesus never forsake the truth in order to love anybody. But the church has always been a people to look to. A people where people says that group of people isn't perfect, but that group of people is different. That group of people isn't perfect, but they got life figured out. I remember, old, man, I remember about old 2 chains. Don't, don't look up 2 chains. Don't, don't listen to him. But, but I remember he wrote a song, I'm different. Yeah, I'm different. Man, I remember the students used to go around singing that song, I'm different. I'm like, you ain't different. You ain't different. You're the same as everybody else. You want to be different, follow Jesus. You ain't different. And that's what he says. What are you so afraid of? Why are you working so hard to fit into the world? We want to be cool. You're not cool. God didn't die for us to be cool. He died for us to be his. You're not supposed to be cool to the world. That doesn't mean you're not supposed to be attracting. That doesn't mean you're not supposed to be loving. It just means, man, you're supposed to be different. And it may be risky, but it is worth it. What is shaping your identity the most? Is it Christ or is it culture? And then thirdly, we gotta be aware of the enemy, you gotta maintain a distinct identity, but three, you gotta stand firm on true theology. You gotta stand firm on the word of God. Look with me in this verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans, the teaching. They're holding to something else. It's hard to fall into wrong teaching when you're standing firm on true teaching. And I want you to write this down. Belief determines behavior. What you believe shapes how you live, and everybody believes in something. In verse 12, he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, the word of God. And the word does in us what we can't do on our own. It does the work of God in the people of God through the Spirit of God. It does the work in your life. Listen to how the Bible illustrates itself. It's a hammer that shapes us. And Jesus was a carpenter, and the Word of God is his hammer where he shapes and molds. And it's a seed that grows us. And it's a water that washes us, a fire that refines us, a lamp that guides us. It's honey that satisfies us. It's sweet to the Christian. And it's a sword that cuts us inward and outward. Charles Spurgeon says, it's the one thing that if Satan bites into it, it breaks his teeth. So he tries to get you to come out from under it. Charles Spurgeon says, when the devil opens his mouth with slander, it gives me an opportunity to ram the sword of truth down his throat. My man. If you want to be a people that pushes back darkness, a people that moves the mission forward, and, and man, we've got to be a people of the book. Know the enemy's scheme. The Philistines took the swords of the Israelites away from them, 
and anything else that could help them make a sword. They just desorted them. And that's what Jesus, that's what Satan wants to do in your life. Desword you, make you unfamiliar with the Bible. That's what he wants you to do. I'm telling you because, listen to me, if, if, if you don't stand on the word, you become a slave to what sounds right, a slave to what I think's right. He wants to de-sword you. That way when ideas come across your feed, come across your screen, your mind, what's trending in popular culture, he wants you to have no Bible to fall back on and to become a slave to what sounds right. Well, I feel like this. Well, I think, man, I, I feel like God wouldn't do that. Man, I, th- I think, I just think God would want me to be happy. I feel, I think, but God feels and God thinks and God has spoken. And to think that, man, my, he says, my ways are above your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. And they had desire over doctrine. But desire doesn't shape truth. Truth shapes desire. Preference doesn't shape truth. Truth should drive our preference. Truth exists out of popular opinion. It's unchanging. It's not flexible. It doesn't bend to popular demand. And we live in a world who has an opinion. And we live in a world where everybody has a belief and everybody has a passion and everybody has a voice and we tweet it and we post it and we snap it and we share it. But if the truth fly, if that opinion flies in the face of the Bible, somebody's lying. And God wants his people to not be a people of opinion, but to be a people of the book. What does the word say? I know, pastor, but man, we about to get married in like two months anyway. But what does the word say? But, but you don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they said to me. I just can't forgive them. But what does the word say? Are we gonna be a people of the book? Does truth even matter anymore? Two teenagers robbed a gas station. They broke into the gas station in the middle of the night. And instead of stealing the snacks and checking to see where the cash was in the cash register, they just started switching the price tags. Next morning, hell broke loose. They opened up the store, and there was expensive stuff being sold for dirt cheap. And there was some cheap stuff being paid a price for that it was not worth paying. And we live in a world where people have switched the price tags. What's precious and expensive doesn't matter anymore, but what's cheap and not everlasting becomes important to everyone. People are neglecting what matters for things that don't matter at all. Does the word of God have complete authority in your life? What is shaping your theology? Is it the world or is it the word? And number four, Jesus says, repent from spiritual adultery. Verse 16, look with me in verse 16. Repent therefore, otherwise I'm gonna come 
to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And this is the problem, is it spiritual adultery? They didn't have a sex problem, they had a worship problem. And it's a spiritual problem way before it's a physical problem. The word Pergamum means married. It means union. And this is the beauty of the cross is it's not just what he did to bring you out of something. It's what Jesus did to bring you into something, union with him. We're the bride of Christ. And this is the problem with sin is it constantly tries to get you to take your wedding ring off tries to have the best of both worlds, to be married to Jesus but still date the world, and Jesus will tolerate no side chicks. He will accept no compromise. And a step towards compromise is a step away from Christ. We don't have a marriage problem, we have a worship problem. We don't have sex problem, we have a worship problem. We don't have a problem being busy, we have a problem being faithful. And here's the invitation, watch this, back into the original design. Nothing else in the world offers this. Nothing else in the world, but Jesus says, I still love you, get in here. Come on. He's, he's an invitation back to life, back to God's original design. Notice the sequence here. Jesus first brought it to the light. Something's going on here. He brings it to the light. And you can't fight the devil in the dark, you got to bring it to the light. And then he invites them to step back into the light. And then a response has to be made because no response is a response. But Jesus confronts us with the word even this morning. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is the Spirit saying to you this morning? And here's the question. What is God inviting you out of? You want to you wage war? Start repenting. You want to charge hell? Start walking in the light. We don't need to charge hell with a water pistol. We need to walk in the light as he is in the light. And then lastly, number five, and lastly, remember what we have in Jesus. Maybe the reason some were drifting back into the world was that they forgot what they truly had in Christ. Maybe the reason they were teaching cheap grace was that they forgot how expensive grace actually is. It's free to you, but it costs Jesus everything. They had the price tag switched. And I want you to write this down. The answer to a strong no is a better yes. And you got to trust that what Jesus has for your life is better. Verse 17, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I'll give hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I'm going to give you hidden manna. Hidden. And in the Old Testament, when, when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt in the wilderness, he fed them manna. And what's interesting is people say that that manna was stored into the heavens before God ever created the world. That he knew he was going to bring his people out of slavery, that he would feed his people and provide for his people. He had already planned it from the time past. 
but he'll give hidden manna, manna. And what does Jesus say? I'm the bread of life. I am. And what he has to offer you is provision for the rest of your life and eternal satisfaction for the rest of your life. I have hidden manna, eternal satisfaction, divine provision. No one can pluck you from my hand. Eternal satisfaction. I'm the gate and whoever enters through me will be saved and come in and out and find pasture. And I offer you a white stone a white stone, a white stone represents victory. It's like, it's, it's when you won the Olympics, you got a white stone. When my boy, when the Braves win the World Series, they got that ring with a white pearl on it. And, and a white stone meant a few things. One, righteousness, white, because that's what he does. He washes you white as snow, doesn't he? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it, a white stone was an invitation that says, you're invited here for the rest of your life. You're invited to sit down at my table. Just, just come on in. And that's what we have in Christ is all access, friendship, family, forever. Why would I want to compromise this? You know why I don't cheat on my wife? Because she's better. Because my daughter's better. My job's better. This church is better. God's better. And the answer to a strong no is a better yes. Why would I compromise this? Who's got it better than us? Nobody. Nobody. It's all access. Peter said, where are we going to go? I think about that sometimes. <laughs> if not God, then where else? If not Jesus, then who else? Where are you going to go? Even if I wanted to go, where am I going to go? You have the words to eternal life. And then he says, I'll give you a new name. On the count of three, say new. One, two, three. New name. New identity. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. Friendship with Jesus. I no longer call you servants. Instead, I have called you friends. And you're either a friend of God or an enemy of God, but nothing in between. And I got two questions. And the question to the Christian is, is Jesus the one and only, or is he your one of many? Is he first in your life, or does he have a place in your life? He deserves everything. He died everything. And to 
the lost. What does your fruit of your life reveal about your standing with Jesus? I gotta be careful here and I'm, I'm closing. But I've been hearing this all week in my head. He told them, I know where you live. You, you live where Satan has his throne. And all week, the words that I've heard is, Blake, I know where you live. You live where cultural Christianity has its throne. Where everybody can be a Christian, even if they're not. And I would just lovingly ask you, I, I hate legalism. You know that preaching is like, don't cuss, don't drink, don't watch cartoons. It's like, good Lord. I hate that. That despise it. That's not the gospel. But God's been working on me some. And I just want, I just want you to hear me out. Do an inventory of your life. And it's okay to be here. Listen, it's okay. But if it's easier, if you desire to watch Netflix more than read your Bible, it might be because you do. If Sunday fun day is more exciting than Sunday Lord's Day, it might possibly be that it is for you. If it's easier to worship the world than it is the God of it, it's very possible that you do because desires in you do. I'm not saying I don't struggle sometimes, but here's what I do know. God flipped my life upside down. Like I didn't invite him to like tag along with me. Like he bulldozed my life over and flipped it on its head. And I'm better than nobody, but I have a new heart and new desires. It's nothing I can take credit for. It's nothing I deserve. But Jesus, nobody, nobody meets Jesus in the Bible and gets saved and walks away just the same. But totally new desires. And, and that's what I'm asking for you to do because I love you. Take an MRI of your heart and say, God, am I just doing the church thing or have I been born again? Does your spirit live in me? I, I'm, I'm hushing. I tell you, I've said this before, I tell you again. My little girl said, she said, Daddy, where does God live? Older. That's the Holy Spirit right there. She, she told me, she said, where, asked me, where does God live? I said, baby, he lives in our hearts. And she said, well, if he lives in our hearts, wouldn't he stick out? I said, baby, he does stick out. And that's all I'm asking for you to do. Has God changed your heart? Because if you get that right, you'll get the rest right. Let's pray. And I just want to give you the opportunity this morning.
Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit's saying to the churches. Maybe you're here, and just maybe the Holy Spirit has been working in your life this morning. And you say, Blake, I don't have those desires. And maybe it's because you're not saved. And you say, this morning, I wanna give my life to Jesus. I wanna repent. I don't wanna fight Jesus anymore. I've been fighting my whole life. I wanna surrender. And if that's you this morning, I just want you to lift your hand in the air so I can pray for you. I see you. <laughs> lift it high. I wanna pray for you. God, we love you. God, I thank you that you love us. God, I thank you for the boldness of those in here who wanna give their life to you. I pray right now, you'd put your spirit in them. God, you'd change them. You'd help them. God, help us to be a church to walk beside them. And we love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.